It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This week, I'm Scarlett Fu. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was another What'd You Miss from home, but there were some new challenges, such as the possibility of a quarantine without bacon. Get your meat while you can, because COVID-19 is ripping through America's heartland, causing shutdowns and slowdowns of plants that process much of the nation's pork and beef supply. Prices are already surging. We spoke about this with Peter Cancrow, founder and CEO of Jersey Mike's, a restaurant chain, and asked what steps he's taken to ensure his customers can get their sandwiches. Well, the entire industry right now, you have the main line, distribution companies where we get all of our product from. We currently use Cisco, they're based out of Houston, but they're a national distribution company. And what happened is all the restaurants basically shut down, obviously several weeks ago, we all know. So their customer evaporated. So therefore, a lot of the uh, people stopped producing the meats. They had to um, eliminate their supply chain because they weren't selling a product. So we have direct, uh, you know, obviously conversing with the manufacturers ourselves, but um, we see it as, you know, the roast of the beef is going to be short. Uh, the ham product in Turkey is okay for us, but we're going to see that in the next couple of months. It's really going to be tough, but we're hoping that restaurants come back online, the supply comes back, and the demand for the manufacturers, they'll start producing more product. They cannot produce a lot of product now because then there's nobody there to use it or to buy it. So that was the big dilemma, obviously. So, Peter, when you look at uh, the the possibility of a meat shortage, um, compare what we're likely to see, say, in the New York tri-state area versus other parts of the country, because so much of what we're dealing with now cannot be just um, said with a blanket statement that it's happening nationally. There's so many localized incidents wherever you look. Right. Okay. So, yeah, the busier, the more um, customer demand in certain urban areas outside of New York or L.A., Texas, the city areas, um, sure, the demand will be higher than, again, uh, rural areas in the Midwest, or say, but it'll impact the entire nation, not just uh, the busy areas. Um, So, so far, we're okay as a company. We have about 2,000 stores in 47 states throughout the country. And again, we're tied in directly with our manufacturers 
and we're already up, upped our supply a bit, so we're going to be okay. But um, the supermarkets are different. You know, they get uh, supplies. Not every manufacturer deals with the grocery chains. So, um, but they'll be affected as well, we feel. But it shouldn't last uh, long. Peter, let's talk about some of the financial uh, help that businesses out there are seeking. Obviously, Jersey Mike's is kind of an umbrella company. Uh, it's worth a lot of money, but it is a franchise system where you have individual uh, owners running their own store or set of stores. With regards right. to the ability of those franchisees to either use PPP or some other small business lending program, what ability have those franchises had in getting access to some type of federal funds to uh, assist uh, through this period? So March 27th is when they announced they came out with the official payroll protection uh, monies. We were on the phone with every owner that weekend on a webinar, so we did not sit. And we coached them all through the application process, what they had to do, the 12 months of payroll, averaged out and two and a half times. So we were ready for that first tranche. It was about 9% of the hospitality and restaurants that got the money that were funded that applied. We were almost as much as 30% funded. Now, we are a true small business. Every store is about 1,200 square foot, has about 12 to 15 part-time, full-time workers. So we were fortunate because we were ready and ahead of the game and coached everybody through it. But now, with the mm -hmm. second $310 million coming, we are ready to go again, and we feel maybe the best we'll do is 50% funded. So it's been tough. You know, a lot yeah, of people are yeah. not going to be funded. A lot of people are not funded all around the country, different small shops, um, and they don't right. understand why. Right. No one really can tell the answer, you know. Well, we were just saying earlier how Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan says that the small business loan program should not be a race and that that first come first serve setup they have right now, that needs to be removed. Do you agree yeah. with that? And if they remove it, what, they, what should they replace it with? <clears throat> I was talking with some friends in Australia, some business associates down there, and they set it up where if you're 20% down or 30% down, there was different criteria and levels. The second tranche now, you have to show some financial hardship. Uh, so there is more criteria, and they are going back to make sure some of the universities aren't getting the money and who shouldn't be getting it isn't getting it. So, yes, there's a lot of things that they could do differently, but I know the government acted because they wanted to move and get the money out. Um, but certainly, yeah, some other criteria should have been in place, and it should not be a race. Uh, it's, it's just a fight. And we were in that fight, and we really you know, made sure that we were on it, and made sure we did what we were supposed to do as directed by the government. Um, so, yeah, right. it's, it's a strange situation how it's being run. Um, some are going to be fortunate to get it and happy, and there's going to be a lot more than not that are not getting it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, Peter, uh, I think time for one more question here. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people, in addition to businesses uh, suffering, in addition to businesses uh, trying to seek help, there are a lot of individuals out there uh, who are having trouble uh, being able to afford food or get their hands on food. Uh, I read that Jersey Mike's was involved uh, in a particular program that was helping uh, some of the food banks out there. Yeah. So no one several weeks ago thought that they would be in line to pick up food from a food bank because uh, they didn't have money to buy groceries. So we put together, all our owners got together and rallied, and uh, we raised $2 million this past weekend for Feeding America. And just an emotional weekend. It was just unbelievable what our teams, our crews pulled off. I was down there making subs at a store outside of Miami, uh, had the gloves on, the hat, yeah. the mask, and 
We have like eight feet away from the customers. Most of it's takeout at the curb or door pickup, third-party delivery. So it was outstanding, um, just incredible right, efforts and right. a very emotional weekend. Two million, I think it 21 million meals. So we're not going to stop. We keep uh, hitting it hard and, yeah, and there's yeah. so much need out there. We won't stop. Now, because we're in the middle of a crisis, the Federal Reserve made some changes to the way it announces its policy decision. In accordance with social distancing, there was no lockup. Fed Chairman Jay Powell still hosted a press conference, but it was a virtual one via webcast, where he took questions remotely. We got immediate reaction on the central bank's announcement from Scott Minard, Guggenheim Global Chief Investment Officer and co-founder of Guggenheim Partners, with $265 billion in assets under management. Bloomberg's Tom Keen and Michael McKee joined me in the conversation. We began by asking Scott if he was surprised the Fed did not make any technical adjustments to the interest on excess reserves rate or the reverse repo rate. Yeah, I, I think, Scarlett, I'm, I'm a little surprised at that. I, I, I thought the uh, interest on uh, adjustment, they, they've done that adjustment a number of times. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't tweak it here, but uh, I don't think it has a meaningful impact on policy. Uh, where IVR is, but uh, you know the, the thing I am surprised about, Scarlett, is I was expecting some more clarity on forward guidance. Uh, you know the uh, uh, the question of you know how long will rates stay at these sorts of levels in the short end of the end of the curve? Um, you know what will be the things that the Fed is looking for uh, to adjust interest rate policy. But uh, you know, having said that, uh, on the other hand, I can understand they're they're operating in a fog, and they probably don't want to get themselves overly committed to it, given how aggressive they've been. Uh, I thought they might take this opportunity to yet once again deliver a bit of shock and all that that, that they didn't do. Right. Scott Minard, I've really got to get to this before the press conference. You've been wonderfully prescient about this slowdown in the American economy. You gained some notoriety with an extremely cautious view forward as well. And yet the stock market vaults ever higher. What dynamics are we seeing, Scott Minard, in the financial markets now that the chairman must address in his virtual press conference? Well, you know, Tom, I'm not sure the, sure the, the chairman will go here. But uh, the real question is that based upon valuations where, you know, 2020 earnings are expected to be, uh, the multiple on the stock market makes no sense at all. Uh, it, it bears uh, no connection to reality unless you believe that we're going to get a very strong uh, V-shaped recovery. Uh, you know, Tom, I know you're a student of economics, uh, maybe even more so than I am. And, uh, you know, this is the classic Shellian K. Uh, that is, uh, as the Fed increases the money supply, if the economy doesn't grow, if inflation doesn't take off, then asset prices take off. And I think we're experiencing exactly that, that uh, we are, we're in the midst of a, a flood of capital chasing assets rather than, uh, you know, improving the employment situation or, or raising prices. Scott, I know you've been fairly pessimistic, as Tom mentioned. You say that it may take the economy four years to recover to where it was pre-virus. Um, but the Fed is very clearly backstopping the financial markets, reiterating its support, clearly indicating it is willing to do whatever it takes. So given all that, how should your pessimistic outlook be reflected in asset prices that's going to be continued to be propped up by the Federal Reserve? 
Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Scarlett, because uh, there are a number of ways to come at this. Uh, <clears throat> the first is to say, well, if, you know, we're going to live in this, this, this era of very low interest rates, then maybe a multiple of 25 or 30 times on stocks is, is uh, realistic. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody's really at this point making that, uh, that value judgment. Um, and and uh, the, the likelihood that, uh, uh, that the Fed is going to be able to jumpstart this economy uh, with extremely accommodative uh, monetary policy, I think, is remote. You know, I frequently say this is not the kind of stuff that monetary policy was designed to do. Monetary policy is designed to keep credit flowing and and keep markets functioning. Uh, it's not there not there to stimulate growth. It's not there to to deal with really what are fundamental structural issues that that belong in the domain of of uh, Congress. Scott, it's Mike. Um, I'm wondering, the Fed said it would continue to buy securities, but it didn't put any limit on it. It didn't say how many they're going to buy. didn't even really say how long they're going to buy. Uh, does that bother you as an investor? Would you rather have uh, more clarity on what the Fed is doing with uh, what people like to call QE, even if they're not? Well, I, uh, I, I like the way you refer to that. Uh, the, look, I think that... Uh, the lack of clarity on the part of the Fed increases the likelihood of volatility. And in volatility, there's opportunity as an investor. So I guess purely from my investor's hat, uh, it kind of pleases me that they're not being more aggressive. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the question in my mind, Tom, of course, is uh, let's assume markets become more volatile uh, as a result of uh, of the ever-evolving uh, QE or non-QE purchases, however you want to refer to it. Uh, and so uh, that uncertainty could very well spill into uh, the bond market, and in which case I think the Fed would be very, very quick to react. Yeah. And, um, you know, one question I'd have for you is, you know, uh, will the question of Gilbert control come up today? Well, we'll have to see on that. Scott Miner, this just popped into my puny little head on a really important day for this institution. We were all apoplectic that Jay Powell did not have a PhD in monetary theory, much like the vice chairman, Richard Clarida. Are we advantaged now, Scott Miner, in this crisis that we have the gentleman from Dylan Reed running the show, that we have someone that has a more authentic understanding of the financial system and banking system versus the economic system? Uh, I, I really don't think so. Um, I, I think that uh, this is the time where you need a Fed chair who provides strong guidance, uh, you know, s along the lines of what we had with uh, Bernanke, Volcker, uh, Yellen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, given... Um, the chairman's limited understanding of economics and monetary policy, uh, not to say he's totally naive, but he just doesn't have the same depth as somebody like John Williams has at the New York Fed. Um, you know, I, I think he is, uh, he is always hostage to somebody else's opinion about what to do uh, because they can, they can always argue um, an expertise level that uh, the chairman doesn't have. And I think sometimes uh, I'm, I'm concerned that uh, uh, the goal here is to build consensus among the committee, not to lead the committee, which I think is the type of thing you need in a, in a period like this. All right. So how does 
AJ Powell lead us out of this extraordinary situation, Scott? I know it's early days, and you project unemployment, for instance, to reach 30%, uh, could still be in double digits by the end of the year. Should the Fed identify a specific threshold for, say, unemployment to fall to before even discussing an exit strategy for zero interest rates? You know, Scarlett, I, I think that is inevitable. Uh, they they should establish a criteria because let, let's face it, let's assume for a moment that my projections are correct. Uh, that we, I would expect that unemployment won't be any better than 10% at the end of the year. That was approximately how the worst of the Great Recession, and it took you know another you know practically another decade of low interest rates to, to get the economy to operating levels that we were at, uh, you know, just in, in December and January of this past year. So I, I think they they do ultimately need to provide some kind of a guidance in this area. And, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 otherwise I'm concerned that uh, the market will at some point get itself into a tantrum. And we, we flew through the taper tantrum in 2013. We lived through the tantrum uh, in the fourth quarter. 18, uh, those uh, have not been uh, very productive experiences. And given the, uh, the vulnerability of the economy, I think the Fed is just being forced to be more aggressive than it normally would be. It's hard, Scott, to get a real read on what the Fed thinks uh, the, the longer-term damage is going to be. But in their statement, they do say that the economy is going to be affected over the medium term, which generally is thought of as a year or two, uh, do you read it that way? Do you read it that the Fed is suggesting that we are going to have problems in the economy for a while, and then any talk of a V or even a narrow U is misplaced? We should get used to the idea that we're going to have problems? I think so, Mike. I think uh, I was actually very pleased with that part of the statement. Because it it uh, it was a a sobering uh, look at reality, and look, we all all hope that we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, and by the end of the year, everything will be wonderful again, and we'll all be on airplanes and going to hotels and be in movie theaters. But at a practical level, that doesn't look very realistic, and the fact that the Fed is prepared uh, to anticipate. Uh, sort of, um, you know, problems over the medium term, uh, to me is encouraging because it, it shows that uh, they're oh, taking this very serious. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The Bank of Japan and European Central Bank also held their policy meetings this week. We went through all of it with Nick Maroutsis, co-head of Global Bonds at Janice Henderson. We began by asking Nick if the central banks delivered on what investors were looking for, or maybe if that was an impossible task. Look, I think it's a tale of two different central banks. You have specifically the Fed and the ECB um, grabbing all the headlines, and I think the Fed is winning the battle. Uh, what you're seeing from the Fed is a continuing upsize, upsizing of current programs that they've already implemented, whether it's um, the secondary corporate credit facilities, the primary credit credit facilities, 
the changes to the Main Street lending programs, um, they've basically said they're not going to run out of ammunition and have given really an open-ended commitment to fund the economy at pre-coronavirus conditions. Then the other side of the coin, you have the ECB, where, you know, I guess you can kind of quantify it as a bit of a letdown. It had really zero wow factor and, once again, kind of proves that the ECB has their head in the sand. And I think while over time it may, pre- may prove to be a net positive, Christine Lagarde and the ECB didn't really give us a lot of comfort that they're going to backstop the market to the degree that the Fed has committed to. And while they reduced funding costs for banks, they didn't increase the purchasing envelope. They didn't um, explicitly yeah. target fallen angels or anything on the size of the PEPP. So as expected, the ECB tends to talk a good game but can't match the language and action compared to the Fed. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point, Nick. I'm wondering, though, when you look at how much of a player the Fed uh, has become and is going to become uh, over the next uh, few months in this market, uh, whether that creates distortions that investors need to be worried about, or is this just simply a matter of just wait for and look for what the Fed's going to do and just follow their lead, more or less? I think, you know what, Romain, I think it's a little bit of that. Uh, you, you, you don't want to fight the Fed, right? That's the standing statement that everybody tends to make, particularly when they're moving interest rates around. But you also need to realize that the Fed really has no choice to pick winners and losers in this. They, they can't backstop everybody. And while providing liquidity to corporates and Main Street doesn't mean that there won't be any defaults, many companies still have a lot of solvency issues. Solvency issues. So there's a growing divide between what's happening in the economy and what's happening uh, with, the, with the market. The market function has been solved, but the long-term consequences are likely being discounted too much by the market because ultimately this pandemic is going to alter consumer behaviors for the foreseeable future, and we don't know the extent of the disruption, how long we'll be sidelined, and the impact on Main Street because if those disruptions are larger than expected – and the difference between three and six months is very substantial in economic terms. And while the Fed may backstop it, they still have plenty of ammunition in the tank to continue to tighten investment-grade spreads, particularly with mm-hmm. the new facilities that they put in place. They can be buying up to about $2 billion a day in the secondary market to reach that full size by the end of September. Then you throw in the primary corporate credit, credit, credit facility, and they have a ton of, ton of room that they can work with as well. Speaking of Fed buying, uh, we have a headline that just crossed, and it crosses every Friday. The Fed slows its pace of Treasury buying to $8 billion a day from $10 billion a day. So we've seen this steady ratcheting down of how much the Fed is buying when it comes to Treasuries. Um, I I suppose that's a good sign in that things are stabilizing. Uh, Nick, how much of the recent bounce in corporate credit do you think is don't fight the Fed versus something rooted in fundamentals, especially since the Fed hasn't even begun buying, for instance, those uh, fallen angels? Is it 50-50? 50-50? Is it 90-10? I, I'm hesitant to put a, a percentage on it, Scarlett, but I, I do think that by dumping a ton of short-term stimulus into the system with the economy shut, the Fed is going to maintain and widen the growth divide that we spoke about earlier between the economic activity and asset prices. You know, stocks are really only off about 10% from year to date, which in my view, is just a normal correction. Meanwhile, the economy is completely shut. So I think we need to take a step back and say, let's look at the data a little differently because we can't interpret the typical data that we would see in a normal or a conventional recession. And 
if this tends to be longer than expected, I think there's a risk of debt, debt, debt deflation growing dramatically just given the high levels of debt, and that could trigger even more government intervention and even more Federal Reserve involvement in the markets as it, and, you know, God forbid, the stock market. So the, the Fed is going to do everything they can, but ultimately it all goes back to us getting back to work, opening up the economy to some degree, and I know there's a ton of debate, both political yeah. Um, as well as in the market, that, that people sort of questioning at what point that needs to happen. Ultimately, we need to sort of increase herd immunity, but also get back to work so that we can get the economy back to maybe not 100%, but something like 80 to 90%. Yeah. So, Nick, though, when we talk about the corporate debt situation and, and the potentials for default here, uh, are we running into the issue now where some of the damage is already done, that even once we start this gradual reopening, uh, there are certain companies, certain industries even, uh, that maybe have been hobbled so much over the past couple of months that bouncing back from that is almost going to be impossible? That's, that, that's exactly right, Romain. And, and I think that you're starting to see that. And that's why, you know, like I said, the, the Fed, they, they have no choice to pick winners and losers, right? There, there seems to be yeah. fewer losers each day as they include more asset classes they can't support the entire market. So there's going to be a continued divergence between the parts of the market that the Fed is supporting and the parts that they're not. So that's, as investors, as, as, as we look at the market, we say, okay, we're going to avoid certain names and focus on what we believe to be names that are going to be able to withstand maybe another few months of being locked up or withstand the changes to corporate or consumer behavior um, and avoid those names that we think that are going to struggle for not only the next three months, but the next three to five years. According to a new report, the coronavirus crisis may last for as long as two years. And with federal funding aimed at small businesses, states and workers likely to run out over the long term, would an alternative funding source like a COVID-19 crisis fund be a viable solution? To answer that question, we spoke with Ken Feinberg. You know him as the former special master for TARP executive compensation and the September 11th victim compensation fund. He is known as the country's top problem solver. He is a crisis expert who's often called in to handle the aftermath of a disaster. And we have the makings of a disaster right now. We began by asking Ken for his initial reaction to the U.S. government's first round of stimulus and find out from him what has worked well so far. Oh, I think that uh, by all accounts, this, uh, this tremendous amount of funding that has been uh, sent around the nation to try and deal with the financial adverse impact of the, of the virus uh, cannot be underestimated. I think that that's been an important step. Uh, maybe there'll be more steps like that by, uh, by our elected officials. But taking on the economic adverse impact has certainly been one important factor. So, Ken, I mean, you've obviously been uh, an advisor on a lot of different crises, although if you were sort of in the room here uh, with the government officials and you were trying to sort of map out a plan, a plan for recovery, that is, um, what would be sort of one of the main things you would uh, advise them to do or at least to consider? I've learned over the years that if you're going to um, try and design a very special program to deal with a crisis like 9-11 or the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico or the coronavirus, a couple of things I've learned over the years. First, it better be bipartisan. 
it better be Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, red state, blue state. Everybody better get behind the effort. It's apolitical. It's a nationwide response to a tragedy. That's point number one. We had that mm -hmm. in BP, and we had that in 9-11. Secondly, you better get the money out fast. All this talk yeah. uh, about how, oh, this will help, and this is wonderful, and we're doing this for the American people. The delivery right. system better be very efficient because talk is cheap. So and you don't want to raise yeah. false expectations. Yeah, Ken, let me just interrupt you there, because, I mean, you talked about this uh, potentially being or the need for it to be bipartisan. And a lot of the crises that you worked on, particularly with the 9-11 Victims Fund uh, and even some of the things like Deepwater Horizon, the political atmosphere around those events, around those crises was a lot different. There was sort of a sense of right and wrong, of black and white. I think in this current crisis, you're already starting to see a lot more politicization uh, of the crisis itself and, of course, the response. So in the current political climate, how do you sort of get both sides, both sides, the Republicans and Democrats, to really sort of see eye to eye on something? That's leadership. That's, the, uh, that's our elected officials. Either they're going to come together or they're not. And I think that bipartisanship, you know, in 9-11, the Bush administration and Attorney General John Ashcroft asked me, a former chief of staff to Senator Ted Kennedy, to design and administer that program. And it was from the get-go, very bipartisan. BP the same way. The BP International Oil Company got together with President Obama. They asked me to do it. I did it. And there was always a high degree of let's just help the victims and not worry about political uh, strengths, weaknesses, pluses, minuses. Let's do it. And we did it. And I must say, even with the coronavirus, you've seen a good deal of bipartisanship in terms of these massive okay. funding programs. But how you administer mm -hmm. those programs efficiently and make sure that people's expectations are not undercut critical, critically right. important. So, Ken, has anyone in the federal or state governments reached out to you to play any kind of role or get your advice on this? And if they did, what would be the first thing you'd want to tackle? Well, I've received various telephone calls from members of staff and members of Congress asking whether or not it would be well advised to establish some sort of coronavirus victim compensation fund like was done after 9-11, the 9-11 Victim Compensation Fund. And some have asked whether that might be a good approach, bipartisan, to avoid lawsuits, to invite people voluntarily to enter this fund like we did back in 9-11. Uh, others have contacted me about a special compassion fund for the essential workers who have been victimized by the virus. So there's some policy discussion ongoing, whether or not that'll see the light of day, whether that'll be a proposal, whether that'll be processed in the Congress or some state legislature, uh, that I can't say, but there have been some initial conversations. 
What about the logistics, Ken, of potentially waiving or providing a little bit of relief from liability for companies? We've heard a lot of businesses, particularly businesses that depend on having uh, larger crowds like movie theaters and others, have basically said that without some sort of liability protections, it's going to be hard for them to either open or get or reopen at anywhere near their uh, previous capacity. That's a huge public policy challenge. First of all, don't forget, 50 states have their own laws governing liability. That is not conventional or traditionally a federal function for Congress. That's a state's rights issue where negligence laws and litigation laws and liability protections are usually state by state by state. If you're going to try and mm-hmm. impose some sort of national rule on liability, uh, the way it was done in 9-11 was very interesting. There, um, everyone who was eligible was invited to participate in the 9-11 fund, not required, voluntary. But if you did participate and if the fund provided you compensation, you voluntarily had to waive your right to go to court. So that was the trade-off entered into way back in 2001. Liability protection for industry, but but voluntary. And if you make the fund generous enough using public taxpayer money, the individual eligible victim waives the right to sue. Now, that was the trade-off. Whether you could do that in 2019, I don't know. But that's what happened with the 9-11 just very quickly here, Ken, um, when it comes to the loans, the grants of small businesses, uh, we know round one of the aid was delivered uh, through local banks on a first-come, 1st first serve basis. There are all kinds of unintended consequences. It was a rush job. If there's one thing to fix in um, future rounds, what would it be? Delivery. Just what you guys said at the outset. outset. Operational, streamlined consistency that satisfies our citizens' expectation that was that mm. what was promised was delivered in a fair, equitable and bipartisan way. That's the only way uh, that the American people feel that it is a credible program that deserves support. That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.